1: from cake making to wine tasting for more information visit culinarycenter.com
2: i'm dave arnold host of cooking issues you're listening to heritage radio network broadcasting live from bushwick brooklyn if you like this program visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more
1: oh yeah <laughs> It's that time again. It's Monday, it's 12 o'clock, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And um, I was just looking up, uh, just for fun, the name of the partner of Alexander Graham Bell, because I'm going to share a little-known fact with you folks. When Bell invented the telephone, and they made their first phone call from one person to the other, Bell to his partner, whose name I can't find, um, but they did not use the term, hello. They said, Hoy, hoy! And Bell was really into the idea of having hoy, hoy be the way we greeted each other on the telephone. And I just want to start a trend here and now because I've always thought hoy, hoy was much cooler than hello. So from now on, please indulge me and answer the phone with hoy, hoy. So um, anyway, hoy, hoy, Bob. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hoy, hoy, <laughs> hoy, hoy, Katie. And, and he, his assistant was a man named Watson, and he said, That's Watson. Come here, I need you."
1: Anyway, um, I just thought I'd start with that cute little uh, known fact. And then and now, um, and Bob, you're free to jump in any time with your own joys and sorrows. Um, but yes, I, 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 I like to start the show with a few joys and sorrows that I've accumulated over the week. Um, uh, here's one of my sorrows, which is that uh, Obamacare, believe it or not, is going to be headed for another major legal showdown after a federal judge on last Thursday handed a victory to House Republicans seeking to block subsidies for millions of low-income people. How do these people... People sleep at night. I don't know. Um, the key argument in the lawsuit, um, which was brought by then House Speaker John Boehner, uh, is that the Obama administration unconstitutionally spent money on these so-called cost-sharing reductions because Congress did not appropriate the funds. Um, And the administration, of course, says the funding is permanent, doesn't require legislative authorization. We may all stick pins in the voodoo doll of U.S. District Judge Rosemary Collier. That's Rosemary Collier, C-O-L-L-Y-E-R, who agreed with the House GOP. So just keep in mind that if something happens to Obamacare, we can thank Boehner and Collier for their work there. Um, Here's another cool thing. Here's a joy. Uh, I don't think this will ever happen, but Denmark, is mulling over taxing foods on the basis of their carbon footprint. So beef, and really indeed all meat, will become much more expensive. Now, they raise a lot of pork in Denmark, so I'd be surprised if this actually passes. But it's kind of a cool idea. Um, You know, it's like a soda tax, except it's a meat tax. Um, The government has recognized that left to their own devices, people will continue to chow down on meat as much as ever. So, you know, <laughs> might as well generate some revenue to offset the carbon footprint. Um, but I am wondering how the McDonald's of the world will view that legislation. And then um, another thing that I picked up today, which I thought was interesting, I don't eat fast food, but I know many people do and love it. And, um, and the, it turns out the fast food wrappers, like the paper and the plastics, uh, are loaded with phthalates. Bob, did you know that?
2: I did not know that.
1: Yeah. So it's a known endocrine disruptor that could affect your fertility. And that was posted as a, a new study from the Journal of Environmental Health Perspectives, which I think is run by the National Institute on Health. And finally, here's my last one, because I really want to get to my, my beeswax with Bob. Um, is Here's a joy. Mainstream media is finally, and I've seen two stories about this now, Finally catching on to the really excellent Oxfam America report uh, from last year on poultry workers, Um, it seems that uh, the last draw for most people is the fact that workers often wear diapers because they can't get time off the line to go to the bathroom. If only that were the biggest problem they face. Uh, Apparently, wage theft, threats, intimidation for reporting abuse, major muscular skeletal disorders, and a host of other health issues, which abound on any meat line any cutting line but pissing on yourself really gets the public attention i mean you know like wow anyway you might recall my friends uh, that i covered that report um with one of the authors uh back um in episode number 172 but you can also read the report on Ox- on the oxfam america website um or listen to the show for more information so anyway that that wraps up my joys and sorrows bob stay with me for one minute we got to do a sponsor drop and then we'll be right back with bob martin from the uh johns hopkins center for a livable future and you'll learn all about his incredible cv and then we'll have a fantastic and substantive discussion so stay tuned Alrighty then. So it's time for our chat with um, the wonderful Bob Martin. Uh, if you haven't heard Bob on my show before or on Eating Matters, uh, where he has also appeared recently, um, Bob is the director of the food system policy at the Center uh, for a Livable Future. Uh, he served as the executive director of the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production. I love talking meat with Bob, um, which was also housed at the Center for a Livable Future. And prior to that appointment, Bob has worked for nearly 30 years in public policy at both the state and the federal level. Level. So welcome back to the show, Bob. Thanks so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it.
2: Katie, I appreciate being asked again. It's great to be back with you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you feel that way. Now, um, before we start with the sort of um, questions that I have sent to you and that we, we all know I'm going to ask, um, I wanted to just see if you had, um, by any chance, caught wind of this. Uh, there is a petition um, in Massachusetts that uh, proposes—it's called initiative petition number 1511—which would ban within the state the production and sale of eggs from hens and meat from pigs and calves that are kept in tight enclosures. Um, and you can imagine that the industry is going bonkers about this. The title for this uh, article, which was in um, <laughs> in Drovers Cattle Network, uh, is Massachusetts Madness. <laughs> So I'm just wondering, I don't know if you follow the trades as much as I do, but um, I think that's going to be kind of a groundbreaking um, initiative if it passes. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a very important initiative, and the um, uh, Humane Society of the United States has been gathering uh, signatures to get the, the uh, proposition on a ballot. And, and uh, so I'll look forward to uh, helping them uh, where I can to get that passed. It's very important. They've they've done it in a couple of other states, uh, very successfully. That uh, as a way to kind of get around the power of the meat industry, mm-hmm. you know, and in this case, the concentrated power of the egg industry. So uh, it's a very good initiative, and uh, and we'll look forward to helping support it.
1: Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, it could be groundbreaking in the sense that it will allow uh, give uh, other states, I think, um, the impetus to try to pass legislation of their own. Uh, that affects that, but one of the things that really struck me um, in terms of the of the response uh, from the meat industry is they say it would be unfavorable for animals. The sad quote, the sad irony here is that this law will actually harm the welfare of farm animals, says James Dunn, a family farmer from Wendell, Massachusetts. This law will require farmers to use housing that is more expensive to build and make animals more susceptible to injury, disease, and death. The lawyer that wrote this law just doesn't know anything about caring for livestock. Now, I mean, in what way? (laughs) Would, rem- would ending uh, tight confinement cause increased injury and death and disease? I really don't know. Um, yeah, I mean,
2: it's it's really kind of a you know a George Orwellian uh, type uh, construct, right? I mean, totally. black is white and white is black, or or maybe an Alice in Wonderland scenario. It, there's no way that um, that will happen. Right. Uh, allowing the the birds to have more freedom of movement actually will be better for them and. These um, enriched colony houses, they're called, and it's it's not as good as it could be. I mean, they it, it could be, you know, totally cage-free, um, able to move around and get outside, but it's several times the amount of room um, that they have now in battery cages, and it's just really kind of, you know, one of those uh, – false statements that the industry likes to put out to try to scare people.
1: It's just incredible to me. I mean, the depths to which they will sink. I mean, it is so completely counterintuitive that a move like that, enriching the... I mean, on the, on the one hand, they talk about how important animal welfare is, and that's and it is profitable to have great animal welfare protocols. And on the other hand, they persist in, uh, you know, in preserving these antiquated uh, systems that really must be phased out. It's, it's a very peculiar uh, dichotomy that they run
2: in, don't you think? Yeah, and to, and to criticize it, saying this lawyer doesn't know what he's written. I mean, it, I'm I know that um, veterinarians, uh, uh, you know, poultry veterinarians have been consulted in drafting that type of legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have been in other states, and I know they were in Massachusetts. So that's that's a little bit of a it, it, probably trying to transfer the dislike people have for lawyers. Onto that uh, proposal, but that's just not the case,
1: right? Absolutely. Anyway, let us move on because um, one of the things that I wanted to chat with you about, and maybe maybe you and I can talk about this in another, you know, later on if the if the measure passes. Um, or if we see it copping up in another place. I'm going to try to get the Humane Society and maybe somebody from the industry onto the show to talk about the pros and cons, <laughs> because I just don't understand when they say it's going to be worse for the animals. Um, but you guys, the Center for a Livable Future recently conducted a poll that showed that most people think that sustainability is very important and should be included in the dietary guidelines, and that doctors and scientists should be setting the guidelines rather than politicians. And being that this is a political year, and you are like in the, you know, sort of in the heartbeat of the political battle over over food and, and um, you know, food production. Why do you think that this, even though people support the idea, why has this not been translated into any kind of a policy plank for any presidential candidate or any of the races for Senate or the House? I mean, what, what is it's, the obstacle to making this a political platform?
2: Well, that is one of the things we're trying to really uh, uncover or learn more about in in our uh, food citizen project. We're we're going to try to identify, depending on which issue we're polling on, what will motivate a food voter. Um, and we found, as as you said, um, you know, ninety two percent of the people polled uh, said sustainability is a high priority and. 74% said they ought to be included in the guidelines and that scientists should write the rules and not politicians. But I think the blockage right now, and it's, it's similar to what we saw when um, the, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Commission made their recommendations to Secretary Vilsack, and he basically ignored sustainability. I think it's mm. really the power, uh, the very strong power of the industrial farm animal sector, uh, whether it's the drug companies that supply the antibiotics uh, to to paper over the poor animal welfare and poor uh, environmental conditions, right. or whether it's the, the large meat companies. So I think that, or or the species promotion groups like the, you know, National Chicken Council or the National mm-hmm. Cattlemen's Beef Association. I think their um, their combined power is is what's blocking it right now. But I do think that there are several groups that are really interested in. Kind of getting around that by looking at House and Senate races. Um, there's one group called Food Policy Action mm-hmm. that yeah. that the Center for a Livable Future works with that is looking at uh, targeting a couple of states um, to try to put this really on the you know on the electoral map. And right now it's it's just uh, I guess maybe there's so much disconnect generally in the political system between what people want and what the politicians are talking about. <laughs> um, but, you know, this, uh, I, I think in this specific instance, it's the power of the food companies.
1: Yeah, I, I have to say I would agree with you. Um, what did you think of the um, the paper that was written by, uh, I guess it was sort of a manifesto um, by Ricardo Salvador, uh, Olivier de Schutter, uh Michael Pollan, Mark Bittman, the, in their food policy for the 21st century? Um, did you? I'm, I'm sure you read that, and you probably collaborated on some level with them. Um, but they they identified three key points, which were production, and then they you know uh, which includes labor and environmental standards, uh, processing and distribution, which includes antitrust and food safety. I don't really get that, but okay. And retail and institutional delivery, which is wages and economic inequality. Um, I, I find those issues so incredibly uh, impenetrable that I don't even know where you would start with unraveling um, some of those naughty problems. Um, but what did you guys – what did you think at the Center for a Livable Future uh, in terms of these, these three key points? Would you agree that that's what we need to do or these are the, 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 the places where we need to start attacking, uh, creating a, a better food policy? Or did you have other ideas in mind?
2: Well, no, we uh, we'd be supportive of that, and I, I know all four of those gentlemen. Sure. They've and they've all been here at different times to meet with us and speak to to the school, to students, and mm-hmm. it's really kind of an evolution. Um, when Obama was first elected in two thousand eight, very early on um, in the administration, uh, Fred Kirschenman and Wendell Berry mm-hmm. and a man named West Jackson met with Obama to to try to encourage a more long term. Uh, ag policy that, that really combined a lot of those components. And very early on, um, uh, Michael Pollan had a an open letter to the commander-in-chief, and I think he called him the farmer-in-chief, mm-hmm. that outlined a lot of these that. same yeah. uh, goals or some of these same concepts. And so this is kind of a, a, the next step in a logical progression. And since we work at the intersection of uh, uh, animal ag production, uh, health, And the environment, and really how that impacts communities, we we would really uh, be supportive of of all those things. There's also, you know, there's there's a legal definition for sustainable agriculture, first published in the 1996 Farm Bill, and included in three or four other iterations after that. That the National Academy of Sciences has adopted as well, and it talks about, you know, good for communities, good for the land, good for natural resources. And so those same types of main themes. So, yeah, we'd, we'd be supportive of that. I think we would probably like maybe uh, calling out a more direct um, benefit for public health in a international a food policy, because um, that is really uh, key from our viewpoint.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there are so many aspects. It's not just what you eat. But uh, depending on the community you live in, there are so many public health issues uh, related to poisoning of water from agricultural chemicals. um, And of course, you know, the impact of living near a CAFO, which uh, certainly cannot be understated. Um, But you know what, what blows my mind is that even though these, you know, very high profile people published this manifesto and you know, and then and then even went on the campaign trail to a certain extent with some of the candidates and, and I know that um I think it was um Ricardo Salvador or maybe uh, but one of them went out to um, to Des Moines, Iowa for the Iowa caucuses to try to and they published it editorially, the Des Moines Register. And yet somehow the media has completely ignored this. I, I mean, am I imagining that or or do you think Oh no,
2: I- Yeah, you're not imagining it. And and, uh, former Ag Secretary Dan Glickman, in advance of the Ohio primary, um, uh, wrote an op-ed in the Cleveland uh, Plain Dealer, uh, basically saying these same things. You know, anybody that – any candidate of either party that wants to – win Ohio needs to be talking about agriculture and their vision for agricultural production. Um, And it didn't get picked up anywhere other than, I mean, obviously the, the paper he put it in. Right yeah it i think i think there is just such a um you know kind of an angry uh, cacophonous uh dialogue right now that it's hard to break through um but it is it's actually kind of disappointing that both in Iowa and Ohio it didn't have more traction because both those states really depend on agriculture.
1: Absolutely. No, I, I found it incredible. And, you know, with all the fanfare that that paper, you know, was launched with and the plate of the union for the Union of Concerned Scientists, you know, Ricardo was on the show. I mean, it all seemed like, wow, this is going to be really cool. And then over the months, I think I interviewed Ricardo in December. And over the months, it's just like, wait a minute, you know, like nothing has happened. Not one word out of any of the candidates. I mean, I don't expect Donald Trump or Ted Cruz, but I did think Hillary and Bernie might talk about it. But anyway, um, you guys have a really interesting uh, project going on, which is called where you help people develop food policy networks. And I I wondered if you could just talk for a minute about that, because I I thought that was a really sort of like a grassroots way of addressing some of these food policy issues that are so, you know, vexing.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's one strategy we have to kind of, you know, counter the lack of attention, uh, you know, from the top down, from Mm -hmm. politicians down. Uh, There's there's an old saying that the chairman of the Pew Commission used, he was a former two-term governor of Kansas, that... Uh, politicians, when politicians feel the heat, uh, they begin to see the light yeah and <laughs> and so a food policy council network um, uh, is a strategy to help uh, you know politicians see the light at least on a local level. and so the concept is in areas where people are concerned about their local food, that will help them uh, establish a food policy council. sometimes they're affiliated with local. Um, governments uh, mayors' offices, sometimes county level uh, efforts, sometimes at the state level to work on f- uh, food policy change that they can actually affect in their local communities mm-hmm. or local areas um, the probably the the most famous one is the Los Angeles Food Policy Council that was established uh, i think about a decade ago um, when a mayor there you Villalgrosa was very interested in getting healthy, sustainable food into the poor neighborhoods in East Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so he set up uh, this effort, and it was led by a woman named Paula Daniels, who had since left the L.A. Food Policy Council and is affiliated with us to try to help establish those types of efforts in other other areas. So we provide leadership training. We provide information resources. we just had a uh, leadership training for food policy councils in the Chesapeake Bay region uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and we have kind of a clearinghouse information network for them. Uh, there was something called the Community Food Security Coalition that, that operated for years that has since kind of uh, gone by the wayside, and the man that ran that, Mark Winnie, is also affiliated with us. So. Mm-hmm. We provide try to link resources and and do leadership training and also give them some issue ideas that they might be able to work on locally um, for example, on the dietary guidelines they the food policy council network was uh, engaged in generating uh comments uh to the federal government um, we generated about 36,000 comments supporting sustainability and uh, lower meat consumption mm. as part of the DGAC. And that may not sound like much, but uh, previously the most comments DGAC had ever generated was about 1,500. So we were able to really mm. kind of uh, show people's interest in it. Um, so that's kind of the strategy, um, establishing these local groups. And local is, like I said, a bit uh, up for definition, it might be a community, it might be uh, a county or it might be in a state, so uh-huh. it just depends on the interest of the of the group we can help bring together
1: wow it's i mean I think it 's a great idea, and certainly, as you say it 's like it 's a way of making politicians sit up and take notice when somebody comes up with a petition with thirty two thousand signatures on it saying that they want x. Yeah, I think you're going to have to listen to that. And I've even had people on the show um, who are in the political field or who are actually, you know, congressmen or senators, and, and they're like, yeah, if you, you know, send us your cards and letters, you know, call the office, you know, we do listen. I, I don't know how true that is, but, um, you know, it's definitely worth a try. Um, but one thing that I, when I was reading up on, uh, rereading uh, the the manifesto for um, for the food policy for the 21st century, I also read a very long op-ed, I think it was in the Daily Coast or something, by someone who calls themselves an Iowa farmer, and they made an interesting point, which was that the food movement seems to engage almost not at all with the farming community, and am I missing something? I mean, I feel like that's true. I don't hear, I mean, I go to lots of these, you know, food conferences of one sort or another and there might be one or two farmers but they're not really the headliners and i wonder why you think that um that sort of the progressive food movement is kind of leaving farmers out of the discussion which seems very um you know uh well blockheaded <laughs> since they're <laughs> the guys actually doing the work i mean they have to be persuaded as well right so
2: well, right. What do you yeah, think well, about that? Well, I think it has been a deficiency, certainly, and I was just at a, a major conference a couple of weeks ago in California uh, where there weren't uh, any producers, and, and the conference was uh, partially uh, supposed to address the, the uh, problems of uh, food system workers uh, mm-hmm. from the restaurant, all the way back to the farm level, and they had representative organizations there, but no actual people that they were talking about. So it has been an oversight. I do think, you know, what we've been trying to do, and we're in the 20th, uh, we're experiencing our 20th anniversary this year, we actually do try to uh, work with local producers that, um, you know, do it, uh, produce things in a more sustainable way. And we help communities that uh, when they want to uh, block, like an industrial animal production facility coming in, mm-hmm. but so we we have a bit of a balance. We do try to work uh, uh, some with those producers, and I think that you're you'll see um, that there'll be more and more of that. I mean, the the Humane Society is a good example. I mean, they have uh, their head of um, uh, one of their farm animal unit directors is a swine producer from Missouri, and. Huh. They just they just announced a um, um, kind of an advisory body that's made up. I looked at the list, and they're all producers. So I do think, yeah, I do think that that's changing um, for the better. But it's it Mm -hmm. has been uh, a bit slow, and um, uh, but I think we're we're kind of learning as we go.
1: Well, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, farmers, in my experience of, of people who produce, whether it's crops or, or work in the animal ag field, um, you know, if they're not a niche farm of one sort or another, I, they feel very, um, very criticized, very put upon. Um, you know, they tend to be quite conservative politically, and they don't like people getting in their business and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like the food movement has been very remiss in um, pointing the finger at, at farmers and producers as if they were the bad guys when all they're doing is trying to make a living. And I, I think that I, that's something that really needs to change in our, in the yeah, rhetoric.
2: I, Katie, I would agree with that 100 percent because, I mean, here's the thing. I, I've never met a producer, and I've, you know, when I worked on Capitol Hill, hmm. re- representing people from the uh, – working for people from the Great Plains – I interacted a lot with producers, and I was at the Farmer's Union for a while. And they all want – they all believe they're doing the, the best thing for the environment as they, as in the way they've been taught, right? So yeah. it's not like they go out to do bad things. They've, they've <laughs> been told that this is the proper way to produce food and animals. And um, I think that um, unless they're the, the most extremely conservative fringe producers, I do think that – uh, they're open to dialogue, and uh, and we we talked to producers quite a bit. When I when I ran the Pew Commission, we uh, engaged with producer groups a lot. Now sure. they ended up not not necessarily liking what our recommendations were, but uh, we engaged in an ongoing dialogue for about three years with them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I think I, I think they I think producers now are doing things the way they were taught and the way that the land grant schools told them to do it, and. And really the way the the commodity groups have said this is the, the most scientific, appropriate way to farm.
1: Yes, I, I agree with you. And I um, – well, this is another topic for discussion, so I'm going to keep moving along here. But if we have time, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how funding for science and funding in particular for land-grant universities and extension schools is, is coming not from the public sector but from private companies that, you know, steer them towards – what suits them in terms of turning out more farmers who do the corporate farming style. But um, let's talk for a second about uh, how um, both in Europe and in the U.S. with Meatless Mondays and, and sort of other, other – because um, we got to talk about meat at some point, right, Bob? I mean, it right. wouldn't be a conversation <laughs> if we don't bring in meat. Um, <laughs> there is a movement to encourage consumers to eat less meat. Um, and you know, like the Danes, for example, as I said in my joys and sorrows segment, um, they're considering a meat tax. Um, what policy do you think would? I mean, it's not that I'm anti-meat. Don't get me wrong, but um, but certainly, sort of anti-industrial meat, and um, at least as it is practiced now. What 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 f- further encourage people uh, to eat less meat? Do you think? Like, what kind of educational system, policy, or you know, would would sort of remind people of the impact of, uh, agri- you know, industrial agriculture in the farm animals?
2: Yeah, that's a very hard question. I think, mm. uh, I do think we just missed a, well, we didn't, because we were uh, advocating for this in the dietary guidelines. Yeah. But I think the government just missed an opportunity to reinforce the importance of eating less meat you know, as part of dietary considerations. I think that, um, you know, previously they've talked about, uh you know limits on uh on processed meats that should be consumed and they they kind of because of industry pressure kind of fudged that this year uh-huh. um, it, well, our meat consumption uh is going down in the United States but, yeah but um we still eat um about uh, two and a half times what's recommended by the American Heart Association or the American Cancer society so I think it's um i think it's things like um you know, the dietary guidelines, uh, hopefully next time around, will say, you know, be more specific about eating less meat. I think a lot of the non-governmental organizations, the civil society groups working in this area, talk about that now, eating less meat as an easy uh, step that an individual can do to lessen their carbon footprint, or, you know, one easy, simple thing they can do to live healthier and uh, make less of environmental impact is eat, Cutting out meat one day a week is not that big a deal. No, and,
1: <laughs> I cut um, it out for weeks at a time. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, no problem. There's a lot of other yeah. options out there. <laughs>
2: and, and, I, and I do think, from a policy perspective, I think that um, you know, it's really kind of a systems perspective problem that. Hmm. We've separated animals out from the uh, uh, commodity and uh, and crop production, so their waste is hauled in and spread instead of them being integrated in a rotational system mm-hmm. i think I think if you look at some of those changes and people are starting to look at that in in you know traditional farm states like Iowa and Ohio and Illinois and Indiana. As a way to um, have healthier soil, mm-hmm. and you've obviously raised less meat that way, but that's really not a bad thing. And and the meat costs a little bit more, but you're actually paying for the true cost of the meat when it's integrated like that into a mm-hmm. into a cropping system. So, I I think it's just um, you know, and promoting. I mean, we're a scientific advisor for the uh, U.S. Meatless Monday program, and so it's it's just. Keep providing the best information we can
1: hmm absolutely um, one thing that you know and I, I just I just finished writing this book about m- meat production around the world um, and uh, as, as I know you know uh, India for example um, is the world's largest exporter of beef, which would come to a surprise to most as a surprise to most people it's not actually cows as we know them because they are sacred but it's it's buffalo um and, uh, you know, China has invested enormously in industrial production uh, for meat. And so and the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of countries like that see meat not only as something that they really need nutritionally. For example, in India, the government actively promotes people to eat more meat because of the, the widespread hunger issues and malnutrition there. Um, And so, you know, not only is meat a nutritional boost, but it's also viewed as a measure of status because part of the thing that's driving more meat production is increased, you know, uh, standard of living in many countries that have been very poor in the past. So so in light of that, it's like – and in light of the carbon footprint of raising meat in the industrial fashion – how do we tell those people, like, no, 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 you shouldn't be getting Tyson in there to build plants and, you know, raise chickens by the bajillion. Uh, you should be doing it the way you've been doing it for, you know, a million years. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, how do you say to people, no, you can't eat meat because, you know, we've already polluted the world, and, and so now your turn isn't going to come. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like hard to export that. Oh,
2: ideology. yeah, it's very hard. It's the same t- It's the same problem with, you know, power generation, you know, what yeah. and- so. Since we've burned so much carbon fuel and kind of uh, helped destroy the the atmosphere, you know, we it's very condescending for us to say to them, "Well, now you can't do that because we right. did that." But um, but but I think with meat production, I it's for me I'd say you know learn from our mistakes because if you look at uh, so many of our health problems, um, you know whether it's uh, you know cardiovascular problems or many types of cancer or obesity, it's all related to our food system. And yeah. I think you see when countries, I mean, you're exactly right. When, when they become more affluent, they adopt uh, a more Western diet, which includes more meat. And there you see their health problems are uh, becoming similar to ours. I mean, Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia has an obesity problem. Uh, it never did before. And it's tied to its affluence and change in diet. So I really think it, it can be, you know, learn from our mistakes. Um, and uh, and also not and do it in a way, kind of meet them at their at their level and not as you know being a superior to them, lecturing to them. Um, right. There are lots of international groups now, and and we're a part of some of that that are really talking about <clears throat> production practices uh, and how the industrial uh, practice is is uh, you know pollutes the water and uh, damages the soil and is bad for health and. Hmm. I think it's uh, slow uh, going, but there is progress being made in that way.
1: I sure hope so, because, you know, it's just heartbreaking when you see, you know, a news item like, uh, you know, Vietnam is is about to, uh, you know, build a new 100 more McDonald's franchises. I mean, really? (laughs) I can't think of anything. You know, it's like it's tragic. I mean, when I was there a couple of years ago with my kid, we're up in the mountains in the northern part of the country, like just across the border from China, and there's Coke and Pepsi and Fanta everywhere, like in the smallest villages. It was just so distressing. Um, But I want to quickly move on because there's something um, that you and I have talked about before, which is antibiotics in the food system, and in a recent blog post, you and your fellow authors Claire Fitch and Keith Nachman review the reasons for comprehensive legislation governing the use of antibiotics in food animals and clinical medicine. I, I wondered if you could just remind us of what those key points were. And also, let's talk about the new NARMS report, which showed some progress in uh, in slowing down salmonella. So, so start with your key points from the blog post, and then we'll talk about NARMS.
2: Well, sure. We um, had a, a bill here before the Maryland legislature that um, we thought really did not go far enough in mm-hmm. reducing... Um, antibiotic use in food animals in Maryland, although I would say that the poultry industry in the state of Maryland has been making strides in eliminating um, antibiotics uh, that are important in human medicine and not using them in in poultry production, so our main concern is um, that routine low level use uh, or non therapeutic use that is given uh, to animals that are confined in industrial operations, given to them daily, right. as I said, to to compensate for overcrowding and poor waste management practices. I mean, these operations really are a breeding ground for bacteria, and the but the way to deal with it is not uh, diminishing the effectiveness of antibiotics for people by giving them in low doses to animals, but it's really <clears throat> excuse me, really more to. To change the production system itself, so yeah. they need more. They need more room. The barns need to be cleaned more frequently. Uh, they need to be ventilated uh, properly. And so you have to reduce. I mean, the key is really reducing the stocking density in just about any type of operation. Yeah. So, um, but there's also a problem that when they, when companies or legislation just focuses on um, the antibiotics important in human medicine, they miss the link that the, the antibiotics used in animals that are in the same class as the human medicines, um, because those, if they're allowed to be used, uh, continue to be used after a human antibiotics ban, can develop resistance to those animal antibiotics that really affects the, the benefit or the, the beneficial nature of the human antibiotics that bacteria can develop Uh, resistance to uh, all the antibiotics in that specific class, whether they're human or animal uh, uh, analog. So right. it's really important to not use any antibiotics inappropriately.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know that is a distinction that people, uh, and especially in the meat industry, absolutely refuse to acknowledge. It's like, okay, we're going to rule out human antibiotics in in our animal production, but we're going to continue to use you know X, Y, and Z because they really aren't used that much in human medicine, or if at all. And the whole sort of idea of, of uh, genetic evolution happening with Within the bacteria, as they become resistant to one or more uh, classes of drugs, you know they just kind of ignore that, and I, you know, I, I find that so frustrating and uh, and scary that um, that this just doesn't, you know, does not seem to compute with them, and they really, you know, the industry pretty much blankets, uh, you know, as a blanketing. Uh, what do, I, what do I want to say here is it, you know, they, they pretty much choose to completely stifle the, that basic piece of information, which is that it's not enough. And also they, don't, they won't follow the other countries who are doing it successfully, like the Dutch and the Danes. Very frustrating. Yeah,
2: it, 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 yeah, it, is, a, it is a really uh, serious uh, d- and difficult problem. I mean, the Pew Commission looked at it as, mm-hmm. uh, instead of really talking about antibiotics, Uh, we talked about uh, banning the non-therapeutic use of antimicrobials Mm. um, because um, all antibiotics are antimicrobials, but not all antimicrobials are antibiotics. And so because we really wanted to look at a systems change, how do you get, uh, uh, really not saying back to the the traditional way of raising animals, but how do you reduce the health impacts of the current system? And it's the non-therapeutic use of antimicrobials Allows these dysfunctional systems to keep going, and right. so, for example, they—I think most of the poultry uh, producers in in Maryland have stopped using human antibiotics, but they still use ionophores, which right. are kind of fall in that gray area. So, uh, uh, it it does present a really serious problem.
1: Yeah, no, it's and and they and they're just so intractable about it, and meanwhile, refusing to acknowledge that other countries have systems that do work. Um, and, you know, don't pose the same threats. But the NARMS report, the the National Antimicrobial... I'm sorry, I've just spaced out on what NARMS stands for. What is it, Bob? You know.
2: Yeah, National Anticrobial Resistance Monitoring System. Right,
1: right, Monitoring System. Okay, so their report showed some progress in salmonella contamination, particularly in some of the drug-resistant varieties, so that's good news. Um, But can you talk a little bit about what they mean and whether... The fact that they're withdrawing these antibiotics that affect salmonella um, <clears throat> is shows that they're actually paying attention to the you know the quote the famous guidelines uh, that were issued in 2011.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's really <clears throat> hard to tell. I mean, they're not the, that's not the the most uh, comprehensive reporting and monitoring system, mm-hmm. but it does indicate some improvement. And uh, my guess is it's uh, due to um, you know, improve production practices and finding other ways to, um, again, it would it would be antimicrobials uh, uh, to suppress salmonella and um, and not antibiotics. Uh, but it's really because they're they don't report as uh, much detailed information as a lot of my colleagues here would like at the center. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to tell, um, but it, w- it would appear that. Um, you know that the changes they've made have been uh, effective in in uh, reducing the rates of salmonella, particularly drug-resistant varieties.
1: Um, you know it right. is amazing. Yeah, I, we had
2: a I, I can remember touring an egg facility, uh, and there was a USDA inspector there. This was a few years ago, mm-hmm. so before the uh, before this data was available. But um, he said um, even though their goal is to, you know, an ideal goal would be down to zero. He said, but it's it's really so very difficult um, and the facilities i visited were really kind of state-of-the-art right. and not really industrial but he said it's just so hard to um, get it down to zero that if you you know have a um, you know uh, uh, low uh, or a high single digit rate that that's considered success by the usda
1: right right i think it's considered success by any measure really i mean it is. It's a farm. It's farm animal production. I mean, you know, it's like there's no way you can make it immaculate. It's not going to be, you know, bacteria free. That's never going to happen. So, uh, but no, the Europeans.
2: Right. And, and I think the key is the production system can allow the animals. I mean, if it's done properly, that, you know, there are ways that the animals, uh, through interacting, it gives back a little bit to the, you know, uh, keeping them in the rotation system. They mm-hmm. can develop immunities and and. And fight these bacteria naturally without without needing antibiotics that 's a little different than um, poultry and egg production. I mean it really is about the cleanliness of the barns yeah. and and there are also a lot of they 're making uh, quite a few innovations in feed mixtures that that help them naturally battle these uh, salmonella too
1: yes that 's true I mean the Europeans have managed to pretty much eradicate salmonella. Uh, in some countries. And yet, but on the other hand, uh, rates of listeria, for example, have, you know, skyrocketed and nobody's there. They're all scratching their heads about why that's happening. Um, But I I wanted to chat for just a second, because we're going to have to wrap it up in a minute. You know, we've referred a couple of times to the idea of mixed use farming and going back to an older model where you instead of monocropping, you know, thousands of acres in in corn or soy and and then aggregating animals by the tens of thousands in barns, um, you know, to go back to something that is a little bit more holistic um, and the impact that that has on soil biology and how that's becoming like a big trend. Everybody's I, I hear everyone talking about it. You know, but do you think that we would actually produce enough food? Like the meat industry loves to tell everyone that without their part in the food production system, we will all die of starvation. So, you know, like the the idea being that if we aggregate animals, that's the only way to make it work. But it it is a question that that bears, uh, you know, some scrutiny because you can't put that many animals First of all, we don't we don't have enough arable land. I don't really see how this would ever work, which is why I personally advocate for a better industrialized system um, that uses some of the efficiency that we have, efficiencies that we have developed, and then does better at it. But what do you think? Do you think that we could ever go back to that sort of model of mixed use farming?
2: Well, I think we could. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't have a lot of uh, the numbers worked out right in front of me or anything. But I think you have to look at it as you know, again, a systems issue. And really, uh, on the consumption side, um, I mean, we are we are eating way too much meat uh, for a healthy diet. And I think that um, there needs to be a, more of a balance. Um, you know, if we so the. Heart Association says you shouldn't eat any more than three ounces of meat a day, about the size of a pack of cards. And the average American eats about eight point three ounces of meat a day. Oh, yeah. If you were, if you were getting the, uh, if you were eating the, the consuming the amount of meat or cutting your meat intake by two thirds, like the Heart Association and Cancer Society suggest, the amount that would need to be raised would be, you know, significantly lower. And you could, I think, then. Uh, have a mixed farming system and reintegrating the animals into the production cycle and uh... the land stewardship project in minnesota has done a lot of research on on this that, that uh... shows the improved quality of soil health mm-hmm. um, the leopold center at iowa state has done i think it's twelve years of research um, comparing the conventional production model of crops uh... with uh... reintegrating animals in a three and four crop rotation system mm-hmm. and and the soil uh, was more biologically diverse. It retained uh, uh, water, so it didn't need as much water to raise crops. Right. And the yield the yield was just the same. So I, I think that there is a way, uh, you know, to do that, but it's not something that's going to happen overnight.
1: No, it can't. I mean, you know, I mean, where where will all the meat companies sell their meat? I mean, they've already expanded around the world.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, anyway, well, and, pop- and the other, the other thing to look yeah. at is you know about eighty five percent of the corn and soy raised in the country goes to animal feed. Yes. So if if you cut animal production uh, to meet a more healthy diet, you you would have more land um, freed up that would not going, it would not be going to just corn and soy production that could be mm-hmm. used for other crops.
1: Yeah, yeah. It'd
2: be it, it. To me, it's it's such an energy inefficiency to spend so much water and so much petroleum to raise crops that you feed to animals and then you eat the animals. It's not a really smart energy transfer. No, definitely not. And by by the way, I eat meat. I'm not not saying don't eat any meat. Um, But it just doesn't seem to make much sense the way it's structured now.
1: I I couldn't agree with you. Well, um, we should um, wrap it up here, but uh, I want you to be able to um, tell people where to find uh, more information to look at the Center for a Livable Future and Anything new that you guys are working on that you want to promote right now?
2: Sure. Well, we've got this, the newest thing we've got going is the the food voter project that I mentioned earlier. We're we're going to continue doing some polling in the, in the months ahead. We mm-hmm. are working some with food policy action. Our food policy councils will mm-hmm. be involved in some select states working with food policy action, uh, helping educate um, candidates, and you can always find us uh, on the web at uh, Center for Livable Future.
1: Fantastic, and thanks for keeping up the great work. Um, I love food policy action, by the way, and uh, and uh, somebody that you you probably have worked with is um, Tim Ryan from Ohio, the oh, congressman. Yeah. Awesome guy. Loved him. Loved oh, him.
2: He's yeah, great. Yeah, his, his writing on this on these uh, subjects is really good.
1: Really good. Anyway, with that, we, need, we, we, we d- must... Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
2: We, uh, we, we need more Tim Ryans and more Shelley Pingrees in the, in yeah. the Congress.
1: That's what we need, and so the, for that... We must say goodbye, but <clears throat> we'll remind everybody that it's really important to vote, vote for your congressman, and and get involved in those in those little food policy systems, uh, groups that Bob's uh, that the Center for the Livable Future is helping to organize. So, um, thanks to my sponsor, uh, the International Culinary Institute. Thanks to Jack Insley, as always, for um, for engineering. And Bob, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, and we'll be we'll be talking again soon. I promise. And thanks for thanks, listening, Katie. folks. See you next week.